about the world we want, then let's try something different. Let's try showing. We are New Haven. We are the American city. Let's show the world a community we're thrilled to be living in. Let's tell our children and our grandchildren 50 years from now that in this time and in this place, we came together. Let's imagine change unconstrained by our individual understandings of what's possible. This is all of us on WNHH, 103.5 FM, New Haven's independent radio station, and streaming live on WNHH.org. I'm Greg Grinberg. My guest today is Steve Winter. Steve is running for the Board of Alders from Ward 21 in New Haven. Steve, welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Thanks, Greg. It's great to be here. So, Steve, your uh, platform, I think, is laid out really well on your website, uh, which is steve for ward 21com Yeah, or also steve forward 21com It's kind of a pun. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. Um, so your and your your platform uh, consists of policing reform, organized labor and unions, transportation equity, youth entrepreneurship, and workforce development. And I think you have some really neat ideas there that I'd like to talk with you about. Uh, transparency and accessibility to elected officials and uh, education, in particular, older control over education funds, which is, I think, also really interesting and I'd like to get into. But I think sometimes the best way to get at the nuances of political platform is to explore areas in which the values expressed in the platform can kind of run into one another. So to start with, I'd like to talk about policing reform and unions. At a recent community forum on policing reform, Chief Campbell referenced labor uh, contracts uh, sort of tying his hands in response to some of the suggestions and criticisms that uh, were laid out by community members at that meeting. So first of all, do, do, does labor negotiation trump the community's interest in defining how the community itself is going to be policed? Well, I think it's it's tough to say. You know, I think it would depend on the specific situation. Uh, but, you know, what we need in this city, I think there's broad agreement. You know, we passed the Charter Amendment in 2013 to create a new Civilian Review Board. Uh, and I think there's broad agreement that we need more oversight of the police. And if, if that's going to uh, conflict with, in some way, contracts, uh, then I think we need to, you know, take a look at those contracts and see how they can be modified to try to accommodate those community concerns. Because right now what I'm hearing when I'm knocking on doors uh, and talking to folks in the community from Dixwell to New Hallville to East Rock uh, is, is that we want to make sure that there's someone beyond the police who's investigating the police in cases of misconduct by the police. Uh, and I, th I think that's really important that there's some kind of oversight led by community members to launch independent investigations of the police. Um, I wasn't at that meeting. I couldn't make it, unfortunately, but I'm hoping to be there uh, this Thursday at the Stetson Library 530 for the next meeting. Uh, so I, I don't know exactly what specific conflicts there were, so I'd be interested to hear more about that. Yeah, sure. I mean, and I definitely encourage anybody who's listening to to come to that meeting. These are this is a series of meetings that, you know, that, that I think are absolutely worth going to. And there's there's real content there. Um, so when we talk about oversight of the police department in, in brass tacks, I mean, the police department is currently under the control of the mayor and also the board of police commissioners who the mayor appoints. Do you believe that any one person, any one mayor, regardless of who that mayor is, 
can fully represent the community in expressing how we want our community to be policed. No, I don't think so. And I don't think the people of New Haven do either. Like, like I just said, you know, we pass a charter amendment to create a new, a strong and independent civilian review board in 2013 because there were concerns that weren't being met. Uh, I remember marching in 2010 after I was arrested by the New Haven police following the Elevate raid uh, when uh, the mayor sent a SWAT team into the Elevate nightclub in a series of club raids after the summer of 2010. And they had you know, semi-automatic weapons, tasers, people were beaten, tased, cell phones were confiscated. I mean, this was really brutal. And this was our own police force acting on our own citizens in downtown New Haven. And I went up to check up on a friend who had been arrested during that raid. I, I couldn't believe that he'd been arrested because this was just the nicest, sweetest guy. But he had got caught up in the raid. The police took his cell phone and then arrested him. When I came downtown, he was sitting there on the, on the curb handcuffed. So I approached an officer and asked what had happened to him and was told that I needed to get out of there. And as I was backing up with my hands over my head, an officer I didn't even see came up behind me and handcuffed me just for asking a question. Wow. And so, you know, mm-hmm. in cases like that, which there, you know, there are a lot of great cops in New Haven. They're doing a lot of good work. When some, something bad happens or, or someone gets hurt or shot or whatever it is, you know, they're the first people who come to the scene. But at the same time, there are instances of misconduct And no, we can't trust any one person to investigate those cases of misconduct. What about, I mean, so there's review power and then there's executive power. Um, And both, it strikes me, are really important. I mean, review power is, is great for redressing instances in which police have acted improperly. And, but when it comes to preventing those instances of, uh, of improper action on the part of police officers, it seems to me that the way we recruit the way we train, the way we continually retrain officers, the way, you know, you know, similar to a continuing medical education or continuing legal education, there is, you know, there should be some kind of continuing retraining for police officers. The way that all that stuff works is really under purview. That's really executive power more than review. So I'm curious to hear where you stand on, on that. How does, you know, how, how, how can, the, 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 because there's been an ongoing debate in the activist community here. I mean, it, it, more of a conversation than a debate, I think it'd be more fair to say, about the role of executive power in a CRB. In other words, should we have a combined community executive and review board, or should, be, should the CRB truly be limited to review power only? Well, I think, you know, both, certainly both, sides are needed and it it's like you said a question of how that's carried out but i think this the city's done a much better job lately of trying to recruit from the community from new haven and also you know we can we should be trying to gather more data about it but you know in terms of implicit bias training trying to work on that but there's a lot more that we could do in terms of training and ongoing training like you said some sort of uh continuing education credits quota might be a good idea for making sure that that training is really meaningful and that people are putting the time in. But that's one thing that, that I'm hearing when I talk to folks is, you know, we need our police out and about meeting us, but we also would like to see them trained so that they know more about the communities that they're stepping into. Uh, in terms of 
who gets to decide how that, that training is carried out. Uh, I think, yeah, I think that, you know, it would be good if a civilian review board at least could make recommendations about what sort of training they feel is appropriate. Uh, I, I would need to learn a little bit more about uh, how that training would be carried out before I'd feel totally comfortable saying that we ought to invest the civilian review board in, uh, you know, crafting and, and carrying out the trainings themselves. Because I know that the police you know, obviously do a ton of training on a ton of different subject, everything from weapon safety to, like I said, implicit bias training. Well, sure. I mean, there are going to be a couple of different, there are a couple of different proposals for the CRB or CERB um, that are going to be in front of alders. Um, and probably the issue is going to be decided after the election. So it's probably going to be, if if you win, it's going to be in front of you as an alder. Um, let's sort of ground the conversation in an example. Um, there was a gentleman at this at this forum that I mentioned on policing reform who mentioned uh or described in some detail uh a case that he was involved in where he was he was going through a um a, a dwi checkpoint or a dui checkpoint and um so he you know he, you know did what you're supposed to do you know you, you roll up and stop and you talk to the officer and um and he was uh asked for his license uh and he was a little confused because there was in his mind no no reasonable justification, no probable cause for asking for the license. He was just driving. He hadn't been doing anything wrong. Sure. Um, and so when he asked why, he was you know, told to pull over, and then another officer came over and said, you know, give me your license, and he said why, and it just kind of went around like that with him asking why until he was arrested. Now, Chief Campbell, said, his response to this story was to say, well, according to statute, if you are asked by an officer... At any time, regardless of what you're doing, when you're behind the wheel of a car driving on public roadways, you you have to give them your license. That's the statute. Now, it, my read on this is that that may very well be the statute, but the police department gets to set its own policies. Right, so, right. Just like with, you know, enforcement of, say, marijuana laws. Exactly. Right? You know, we have a state statute, uh, but does that mean that it needs to be the number one priority for the police department as they're out and about? trying to enforce the law? No, of course not. Absolutely. I mean, and, and I, I think, you know, Gary Winfield, when he was on the show, put it best. You know, we, ha we have towns in Connecticut where there is something that's beyond community policing. It's really service-based policing. And that's, you know, what that takes the form of, you know, kid gets, you know, caught, you know, possession of pot or something like that. They get, you know, driven home in the police car to their parents' house or mm -hmm. whatever and, you know, and, and, and dropped off. You know, that's service-based policing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what, what community policing, when, when community policing fails and we're not actually living up to community policing, the reality of what happens here in New Haven is the kid is, uh, you know, is beaten up by the police. There's, you know, there could be some trumped up. You know, uh, you know, the original the original stop could have been for whatever reason they found the pot. But then, you know, are, you know, are they resisting arrest, whatever, you know, and, and they get driven to jail. Right. Even though pot's been decriminalized by statute. Right. So clearly there's a huge dynamic range in terms of what can happen um, in the same circumstance, depending on what the policies and practices of the police department are. Now, I guess what I'm what, what I'm interested in probing here in the difference between the different proposals for the CRB or the CERB is who is setting those policies and, and uh, procedures for the police department. Is it one person, namely the mayor and a committee of six people whom the commissioners? Yeah, the, yeah, exactly. The board of police commissioners 
whom the mayor appoints, or is it a democratically elected body that can fully represent the diversity of this community? Yeah. Well, I I think like yeah, like you said, we need we need a way for the community uh, democratically elected this civilian review board to be able to weigh in on those policy proposals and and yeah, be able to shape training uh, and shape and shape those policies because if if they don't have a voice in how these officers are being trained, uh, then like you said, prevention an, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And uh, if they don't have a voice in how these officers are trained, then we're, you know, we're going to end up in large part where we are, where we were before. We'll have a civilian review board to handle instances of misconduct after they occur. But if there's no way for the community to weigh in on what those policies are while officers come into the force, as they stay on the force, then, you know, we're not going to be making as much progress as we could. Absolutely. I mean, and and so that... I mean, that is executive power in a nutshell, the ability to weigh in on those things before the fact rather than after the fact. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that would be a, a good part of, a, of the proposal. Uh, and I would definitely be interested in exploring exactly how that could be carried out. And there has been some suggestion that in order to actually get that done, we would have to do a charter, uh, charter revision and a charter revision, um, according to the city charter has to happen every 10 years, but can happen um, more often for specific revisions that, that are necessary. So in this particular case, in order to change, in order to reshape executive power of the police department, an ordinance probably alone wouldn't be enough, you Mm -hmm. know, and yet we don't have to go to the state level. We don't need any new state legislation. We would just need a revision to the charter, which could happen. If that is the case, if that is required, is that something that you'd be willing to do as an alder to take the city through a charter revision before the expiration of 10 years? The next one's due to happen sometime, I think in 2023. Well, so uh, what about the idea I had where, you know, the body is making recommendations to, the board of commissioners or to the mayor would that would that require a charter mis- re- revision i don't if if they're not necessarily setting the policy but they still have a voice in the process uh i don't think that would require a charter revision well i'm not an attorney so you know my you know i can only speculate and that's kind of why i'm speaking in the hypothetical sure. like if it turns out that we need a charter revision right. are you willing to do it yeah. are you willing to actually vote for that and take you know because i mean it starts with the board of alders we don't need the mayor to to do a, a charter right. revision i uh, i think that's a challenging question in part because it gets to this question of like what is good enough at this point in time for a civilian review board or for a civilian executive review board and I think there's a balance that has to be struck there. And on the one hand, like the, the current proposal that's out there, I think falls short in a number of ways, right? Like we don't have any uh, subpoena power for a civilian review board in the right. proposal. Right. Uh, well, and, and now, now to be clear, that is the, that was the original proposal um, from, that came from the board of alders themselves. Right. From and rather to be, to be even more point. specific, the joint committee um, of the board of alders that has jurisdiction over the CRB and yeah. policing. So, and and as you said, it is a starting point, and it seemed pretty clear at the hearing that the board doesn't, you know, to their credit, doesn't have a whole lot of intention to to push that proposal through, mm-hmm. um, given that there was 
unanimous and loud opposition to it on behalf of everyone who came to testify. Well, yes, I will see. You know, I've talked to alders since then who seem to be saying they were interested in staying the course. Uh, so I think mm. that's that's where I would start the discussion is, well, look, here's what was proposed and how do we want to modify that? Uh, part of the part of the rationale, as I understood it, for the this proposal, which doesn't go near subpoena power, it can review investigations while they're ongoing, uh, which is a step forward from the old civilian review board, which could only review investigations once they were completed. So that's a step in the right direction. Is that enough? Is that enough? We've had four years without a civilian review board, and I think that there's real hunger in the city for a civilian review board so that so that we can have the community having a voice in policing. And so, you know, as I've been talking to folks on the board, they've said, look, we, we need to get started with this. We need to pass something and we can improve it later. Mm -hmm. uh, but I see, you know, the lack of independence that this, that the board can't uh, conduct its own investigations independent of internal affairs. I see that as a showstopper. Uh, I see the, uh, the fact that this board would be housed in the same part of the, of the city government that defends the city from lawsuits sure. as a clear conflict of interest. I see that as a showstopper. And then the fact that I can understand that the board is hesitant to invest the civilian review board with its own subpoena power, given what the state statute says. I could see why they'd want to avoid that. But, you know, it's very clear that the Board of Alders has subpoena power and they could write the ordinance such that the Civilian Review Board could solicit the Board of Alders and say, look, we've got a clear case of police misconduct here and we need to seek out evidence. We need you to compel testimony from the following people in order to get to the bottom of this case. And if the board feels that there's, you know, circumstances warranting that, that, that there's a, a real... Uh, issue to be plumbed there, then they can go ahead and do that. Uh, so I think I think that those those are really key issues with what's currently been proposed. Uh, now that it might take a few months to sort those issues out, I'm not sure exactly how long. But to also begin a charter amendment process on top of that, then we could be at, without uh, a civilian review board for much longer period of time. And I think it's challenging. Well, to balance those concerns between trying to get something through on the one hand, like the current proposal, you know, let's get this through. We have something through. But if it has real flaws and you don't want to push it through. Sure. But I mean, and I hear I hear that that there's wisdom in saying, hey, look, let's not let um, perfection be the enemy of the good um, and let's get something done in a timely manner because we need it in a right. timely manner. I hear that. At the same time, I think that that concern is, I think that there are legal techniques that are pretty well established that, that solve that problem. I think that's a solved legal problem. I mean, for example, the use of progressive enactment clauses. It, you know, like you write an ordinance, it's, you know, and you write it to be the ordinance you want to have. Um, but you say if any provisions of this ordinance are not currently enforceable, uh, either under state law or under the city's revision, they are stayed until those revisions are made. So you can pass the ordinance. It, it's, the, it's the best of both worlds. You can pass the ordinance today, but you get everything you want eventually. But you don't have to do 
you know, three or four rounds of ordinances and three or four rounds of debate, you know, you can design a policy that makes sense holistically and express that in one ordinance and then just have, you know, it's it's like anytime you sign a contract and it says, you know, if any term of this contract is is deemed to be unenforceable sure, severability clause exactly yeah. so progressive enactment is, is is basically severability except it basically says we we know actually at, at the start that some of these things are not enforceable so they're not um they're not in force until the until the appropriate revision happens and then they are i i think process wise that sounds really challenging uh i was so uh, I was involved in helping to shape a, an ordinance for cooperative housing in Boulder, Colorado. And the city attorney in Boulder was, you know, very, very stingy when it came to uh, trying to write an ordinance that he felt was completely in comportment with the current state statutes. Because the last thing he wanted to do was get the city involved in some kind of litigation uh, on the state level. And so I think that what you're talking about sounds good, but I worry about the practicality of it. I worry about working with the city's legal staff on something if they feel like it might be pushing the city into legal hot water. Yeah, but I mean, that's why you carve it up, though. I mean, you 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 figure out what you want and then you figure out what can what is what is legally possible today under the under the charter, under state statute. And you then, you know, and then, and then you have the other pieces of it, which are not possible today mm-hmm. and then you but you and then you have a, what is essentially a severability clause that says those things are severed from the rest of it um until the appropriate actions are taken at either the state level or in the in the, in the city's charter so it's actually very defensive i mean it's actually it's actually a very conservative legally conservative way of doing it by saying you know we we know that some of the stuff is not something we can currently do but we are going to but the second we can do it we mm-hmm. are going to do it mm-hmm. Uh, I, I honestly haven't, haven't thought that one through, but like I said, I do have concerns about like the, the practice practicality of it. Uh, but I think, I think the issues you raise are the, are the right issues, you know? And I do think that, that we need to have these, we need to have real conversations about these issues. And, uh, like I said, balancing, trying to get something done with trying to achieve everything we want to achieve uh, and in the near term, I think that we definitely need to ha- be having these conversations about how we can empower our community to have more of a voice in how its police are held accountable and, and how they're trained. Uh, and so, yeah, I certainly would not close the door on, uh, on trying to get a special charter amendment through. Right. Well, that, no, that's, that's great to hear. I mean, because, you know, when, when you think about it, you know, if, if the community is not in charge of its own policing, if the community is not deciding how the police department is going to police the community, who is? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I do think that there's, there are lines that have to be drawn uh, in some cases about, you know, are there issues that we really do want to leave to the police, to the board of commissioners uh, that are, you know, really policing related in terms of, things that civilians really don't know as much about. You well, know? I mean, so in terms of you know, every, splitting every, those things up, I think there's there's a real challenge there. Yeah, I mean, every, you know, every good executive knows that, right? I mean, every good executive has to delegate to people who have more expertise, but who nevertheless work underneath their, right. their, their power. 
I mean, that, that seems true of in any organization that's set up where you have you have a chief executive, whether that chief executive is one person or a group of people, you know, you, you, you hire people, hopefully, who know more than you and you defer appropriately to them. But when it comes to setting the goals of whatever it is that you're doing, policing in this case, that has to be done by people who can actually represent the interests of the community and the views of the community and the values of the community. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about youth empowerment, youth entrepreneurship training. You referenced something really interesting on your site. You talked about kids pairing up with UI as a model. So let's talk a little bit about that. What, what has you excited about that? What's your vision there? Well, what I really liked about the program, uh, getting kids out, helping with weatherizing homes and increasing the energy efficiency of homes is... So this is a workforce program, right? It's like a train. It's a training program for yeah. jobs and job Yeah, readiness. this is a training program for young people in our city to help get them ready uh, for the workforce, but also to help them improve the lives of their neighbors in a real way by helping them stay warm in the winter. Yeah. And on top of that, save energy. Sure. So this is an excellent way for the city to achieve many different goals at one time. Mm-hmm. We're, get, we're getting our young people engaged. That's the number one thing I hear when I talk to folks out in our ward is we need more opportunities for young people, whether that's uh, places for young children to go after school uh, where they can be safe and they can stay busy and engaged, whether that's for high schoolers who, who want to be learning more skills, things that make, can make them more attractive in a tough job market, whether that's for people uh, who've graduated and are learning to and are, are working on learning new things as well. We need more opportunities for young people. That's the number one thing I hear. Almost, almost not all the time, but the majority of the time, it's the first thing that someone tells me when I knock on their door. So you see a need for a bridge that essentially gives kids some skills and some experience so that they can then go take that experience and, and go to to employers, you know, local employers and say, hey, I have these skills now, give me a job. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that there's, you know, as you well know, there are some skills that there's almost unfathomable demand for, like computer programming, website development, web application development. Mm -hmm. Uh, On the harder side of things, there's skills like welding, where we can't find enough people who have these skills. And so trying to pair young people uh, who are looking to stay engaged with these high desire skills, I think is a really fantastic thing in terms of creating an environment where businesses are interested in coming. And one way we can start to do that is by looking at the assets in the city, both Yale and beyond Yale, sure. businesses that are interested uh, in in uh, creating these kinds of skills, developing these kinds of skills, and would be interested like UI in offering opportunities to young people to cultivate these skills and to go out and improve their communities. Sure. So let, let's talk about other opportunities, specific opportunities that you see to expand that kind of programming. What other types of, pro- you know, you described this, this you know, weatherizing homes for, for, en- for better energy efficiency, to keep the homes warmer in the winter. So, you know, beyond giving kids valuable exposure and experience, and I, mean, I personally believe that exposure counts for way more than it's given credit for, than mm-hmm. just, just exposing kids to what, actually needs to be done in the real world can, you know, can, can offer so much value. So, you know, disproportionately to what it costs many, many times over. 
but beyond that, there's a win-win-win. You know, you're 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 saving on energy. You're 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 helping people to save on their ele- you know their electric bills or their or their natural gas bills, and they're you know they're more comfortable in the winter. All of that's wonderful. What other win-win-win opportunities are there that you see? Well, I think uh, in Dixwell and New Hallville, people are are really ready for the new Q house to come. Great, it can't come fast enough, uh, and we're hoping to see that in the next year. Uh, there's going to be computers in that facility, and I really want to make sure that there's programming set up for young people yeah. who are interested in learning about the internet, learning about how computers work, learning about software development, that that there's folks who are interested in engaging with those people, and like you said, exposing them to this whole world of, of software, of computers, and of the amazing things that one can do if they know a little bit to, enough to get their hands dirty. Uh, and so I think, you know, making use of those resources will be really important. And whether that starts with uh, some folks who want to engage, I think it could start with engaging people who are interested, exposing them to it uh, through, you know, the massive online open course model, but doing it in person with someone you can go to talk to if you're having trouble and also trying to focus that energy onto real issues that we have here in the city. So are there are there data issues that you know the Department of Transportation wants to see sure. worked on? Are there ways where we can you know have our kids in the community try to figure out, okay, these are the intersections where there are the most uh, accidents. These are where we're seeing collisions or people get hit by cars. Um, so I think you know it's it's hard to get a win win win, but I think you can start to you can start to see how we can use some of the assets that are planned for this community to really engage with young people and keep them busy and hopefully channel that energy into addressing some real issues. Oh, indeed. I mean, when you think about all of the different city departments, you know, maybe, you know, maybe transportation traffic and parking needs uh, an app built, you know, a mobile web app, something like that. One one young person I talked to the other day on Shelton Ave said, you know, big problem here is snow plows. And, you know, what do we do when the plows come through and people can't move their cars, where are they going to park? Uh, well, maybe there's a, there's an application that the city can work on there where you can go online and figure out, okay, here is where I ought to bring my car in order to, that the plow can actually come through and plow out my street. Right. Now, municipalities, in my experience, tend to be pretty risk averse, you know, when it comes to spending money. They, they seem to, their relationship with risk doesn't seem all that healthy to me in the sense that, you can, you know, you, there, there. It seems like municipalities tend to favor spending lots of money where there's very little probability of failure. When we could instead spend a tiny little bit amount of money on something that may not work, but if it does, it's great. And even if it doesn't work, it does other good things. So, for example, you know, I, when I when I when when we talk about you know kids getting involved in data or programming, building web apps or mobile web apps for different city departments, that kind of thing. Let's face it, the overwhelming chance is that whatever a, a group of kids, you know, if we're talking about middle schoolers, high schoolers get together and build, the overwhelming chance is that this is going to be something that's, you know, useful, maybe hopefully a little bit at first, but is probably not maintainable. I mean, there's a reason why software engineering is expensive. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, and, there, and there's a reason why software engineers are in such hot demand and why the, you know, why the salaries are so high. 
But at the same time, if we set up those kids on a path where they've learned something they felt good about, they had a reason to be learning what they were learning, they felt good about contributing something to their community, that program doesn't have to cost very much. Um, we might not get the apps that we're hoping for, but we definitely will get that exposure for those kids who might then go and study computer science in college, and they might go become software engineers working for companies like Facebook and Google or other, you know, other good companies that don't have that kind of household name recognition, but still pay the kinds of salaries that uh, that we would that we would wish for for all of the kids growing up here in in New Haven. So, I guess my question is, how do you see your relationship with risk as a, a you know as, as a prospective alder? I mean, are you are, are you willing to spend city funds on things that may not work? Is may not work a vice or is it a virtue? Well, I think in this instance, the example you just described is an example of it working. If the primary goal is to uh, expose these kids and educate these kids, develop skills for these kids, then that's the goal, is making sure that our youth are exposed to issues and ideas that they can carry forward with them and hopefully bring back to the city in a meaningful way at some point in the future. If that's the goal, then I think there's still success there. I think that uh, you know, given what I'm hearing from folks all across the ward, that we we really ought to be uh, trying to direct as much resources and attention, uh, and have as many partnerships with local businesses, nonprofits, and other institutions as we can, in order to make sure that kids stay engaged, that they have things to do, that they have things to learn, and that they have a place to be. That's somewhere where where I think we we really do need to you know try new things and experiment. And those experiments may not always work, but as long as we are learning from them uh, and keeping our eyes focused on helping the, the, the youth of our city, then, then I do think that's success. Sure. Yeah. That's the, you know, that, that I think that's a really great way of looking at it. Just sort of being really clear up front about what the goal is and, and defining success using a long arc you know, saying that, you know, we're, this is about exposure and for some kids it's going to lead to X and for some kids it's going to lead to Y, but still the exposure is is the goal. I mean, that, that seems really clear to me. You know, we also have been talking as a city about installing universal fiber optic internet to, to all homes in New Haven and having the city essentially pick up the cost for that. And maybe having a sort of, uh, it might be sort of a freemium model where, you know, the, the lower speeds are, and, and by the way, the lower speeds would still be extremely fast right. um, by, by today's standards. Um, and then having a sort of, a, you know, a, you know, a, you know, a, a, a pay up model, you know, or, you know, a pay to upgrade model, but sure, the base model really is free. Fast. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I'm interested in hearing your thoughts on that in general as a program, um, your, your, your support for that, your feelings on that however you know whichever way you go on that and then also kind of just exploring like is that an opportunity to do the sort of jobs training that you're talking about for kids because after all you know cutting ethernet cable is that's a great that's just hard enough it's not rocket science you know it's just hard enough for kids to to be able to find that you know challenging and learn something you know from it yeah and yeah so in terms of like hard skills that kids could develop uh you know like we were just talking about the city obviously has a budget. It has to be fiscally responsible. There are you know, whole issues about unpaid liabilities and, and all this other stuff dragging on city finances. But yeah. so you mean places, like pension obligations. And, yeah. yeah. But mm-hmm. there are places where, you know, it really does make sense 
to invest in economic development. And so if there are situations where we can both train young people and invest in infrastructure that's going to help us be productive, then, then that seems like a really wise use of public funds. You know, there's, there's things like, you know, the stadium up in Hartford. Uh, it's great that Hartford has sure. a baseball team, but is that ever going to pay for itself for the city of Hartford? Right. Probably not. Mm -hmm. But if everyone has access to, to internet that they can, even if they're just accessing it everywhere I go, folks have mobile phones. Not everybody has computers yet, but right. everywhere I go, people have mobile phones. If, if they can access the internet at high speeds on their mobile on their mobile phones at home or in their neighborhoods, uh, that's going to open up huge amounts of opportunity for folks to learn new things, like we were just saying, learn new skills, even if it's just on their own, just just browsing browsing online. Uh, so I think that yeah, that that infrastructure uh, allows for a whole new class of ideas and businesses to spring up it's it's like it's essentially like fertilizing uh the soil in our community and so uh i think like you, the other great idea there is that these are things where we could involve our own community members and provide jobs to our own community members and setting them up so you know that would be something that i think would be interesting to explore as well as like are there ways that we can provide solar power for homeowners in the community? And are there ways that we can right. uh, bring kids into that? Uh, I've been involved for a few years with a nonprofit that hasn't made it to Connecticut yet called uh, Grid Alternatives. And they partner with solar uh, panel makers and uh, solar equipment providers. And they have a, a small trained staff, just a few people, but they bring in an army of volunteers and they'll put us, uh, really affordable solar system at no cost on a homeowner's roof. And so I think that is also an interesting opportunity where, wow, at the end of the day, we could end up with uh, solar power on someone's roof uh, and some young people who are now on their way to being certified solar installers. That I think is also a really valuable hard skills opportunity that you know the city the city ought to explore are there opportunities to partner with a nonprofit like grid alternatives get a program like that started absolutely absolutely and spending the money if we have to but knowing that it's a good investment yeah absolutely so steve you again your website is uh steve for ward 21.com how else can people meet you get to know you if they haven't already uh well feel free to shoot me an email steven with a v s t e v e n B as in boy, and then winter. So Stephen B. Winter at gmail.com. Or you can feel free to call me or text me. I'd love to talk on the phone. I'm kind of an old school weirdo like that. Uh, 401-316-8271. That's 401-316-8271. I'd love, I'd love to hear from folks. Every time I leave a postcard on someone's door, I make sure to leave at least my phone and usually my email as well. So I really want to hear from folks about what their priorities are. Uh, that's why I'm running as an independent. These wards are small enough that you can get to know your neighbors and understand their priorities directly. And then hopefully if elected, represent them at city hall. That's awesome. All well, the man's giving you his mobile number. You're running for <laughs> Alder in ward 21. The election is in November. Blow up my phone. <laughs> This is all of us on WNHH 103.5 FM and streaming live on WNHH.org. Thanks for listening. Thanks so much, Greg.